Welcome back to the Dabbler Cast, the podcast of the Dabbler Farm. I'm your host, John Larson. I wanted to take some time in these first couple of episodes to review um, our values. When uh, we discussed the farm and the approach and what we were trying to accomplish, of course, these discussions were long and and took um, several years. I've been able to kind of distill that down into seven values using the traditional term of the things that we value um, on the farm, the things that we're trying to achieve, things that are kind of guideposts for us in terms of making decisions and and helping decide what matters to us. And we we came up with about seven of these, and you can uh, find them on our uh, website um, if you want to uh, take a look. And um, I hope to um, record one of these for each of the values so that we can kind of understand them more in depth because I think it's important um, for starting a dialogue with y'all so that we can understand um, what it is we're trying to do and and why um, as we try to, to make connections and steer into the future. The first value uh, that I want to discuss today is that of having a long time frame. A couple years back, some friends and I got together after uh, we had we had all kind of left high demand um, religions. A high demand religion is one that requires a lot of your time and attention. Um, sometimes negatively, these religions are referred to as cults. I think there is a spectrum of behaviors um, that might speak to that term, but really they're religions that demand a lot of their participants. And it can be fatiguing after one leaves and could be disorienting. But um, we got together, um, many of us who had um, smaller children at the time, and we recognized the value that um, uh, religious communities provided to families and to children. And um, we wanted to see if we could capture some of that um, without having the trappings of dogma or the abuses that come from religion, the promotion of of individuals who may not have your best interest in mind. And um, the one of the participants was my good friend, um, Brian Jolly. Um, we, we sort of met together to first define our values, kind of like um, what we're doing today. And um, he brought to me a quote by um, Richard Dawkins, who said that you should value the future on a time scale longer than your own. And those words have stuck with me all these years. It's something I've returned to um, quite often because I don't think it is a core value of our um, culture today. And I, I want to explore that a little bit and talk about why and what we can do about it and what we're trying to do about it here at the farm. We, of course, live in a, um, in a, in a capitalistic world. And um, this podcast is not necessarily a criticism of capitalism per se, but it's important to look at um, how we got to where we are. And um, one of the things that has been important to human survival since the beginning, I'll presume, is access to land, access to clean water, access to hunting grounds, access to places to gather um, and grow crops and just basically um, provide for our, uh, our clothing, our shelter, and the food that we need to eat. So having having that relationship with land has always been um, key to our survival. And um, you know, if you look at the history of, of warfare and conflict, you'll see that um, what people are usually fighting over is, is key 
um, bits of land, even the conflicts um, of today in, in 2024 are mostly about land and um, what that land can be used for. In a lot of ways, ownership, quote unquote, of land means a means or a mode of self-determination. And, um, you know, the, when you look at the new world, the, the sort of founding drive of America, you have a lot of people coming from the old world to the new world and then moving west and moving west to try to be able to achieve their own land and move away from kind of the feudalistic um, barriers that, that prevented that um, in Europe, where the land had been in the hands of powerful um, families or, or the church or, or those who controlled land for, for a long time. And um, ownership of the land also means moving away from the role that is oftentimes reserved for the majority of the population, which is usually some form of serfdom or slavery, to the landowner. So land ownership became very important to the uh, American identity. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, home ownership is a huge vehicle for wealth. It's my understanding that over the past, um, you know, since the end of World War II, it has been the number one, the most lucrative way for the average um, family in the United States to um, compound their savings. The returns on home ownership have beat out the markets and saving things in a bank and other investment again and again and again. So home ownership was extremely important. But um, capitalism is very hungry. The capitalists are always needing return on their money. What we're seeing right now, unfortunately, is a consolidation of land and um, housing and farmland into the hands of very few. Currently, um, Bill Gates, um, who is you know one of the uber billionaires, of course, founder of Microsoft, owns 270,000 acres, that's 270,000 acres of farmland in the United States, which actually constitutes one four thousandth. So out of every, every 4,000 acres of farmland in the United States, Bill Gates owns one of those. And that's um, um, especially when you consider how large farms are getting right now, it's not uncommon for a single family farm to be farming over 10,000 acres, um, using of course mechanization and other things. Um, so it's, it's a significant chunk of land. Bill Gates recently, in, in the last uh, little while, I, I think it was earlier this month actually, um, it's January 2024, he was asked about that on a Reddit. He had an AMA, and um, what's interesting is Bill Gates is, is, is publicly um, pushing um, issues around climate change and, um, you know, sort of um, greening up industry. I, I'm actually not an expert in, in what he does, but he was asked about the, the land in particular, and it was fascinating because his response was this, my investment group chooses to do this. It is not connected to climate change. So, so here you have probably the biggest single um, now landlord of farm space in the United States, and, and modern farming um, is problematic in terms of, of, of climate change, both for the dependence on fossil fuels and for its methods that are not either sustainable and also are very carbon hungry. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear somebody who's, whose work is, is supposedly around this issue, but where the rubber hits the road in terms of what he owns, it's not an, an, an ideal for him.
this has actually been a trend um, um, all over the place. Um, uh, There was, um, according to my readings, there was a big shift following the um, housing bubble crisis of 2008, 2009, the great financial crisis, the great recession, um, where um, investors were looking for alternatives to traditional safe havens. And what happened is there started to become a proliferation in funds that are specifically focused on farmland investment. And um, in 2020, um, according to um, a thing I got from agfundernews.com, there were 166 investment funds for farming. So this is where the investment firms, um, basically, you have you have companies that own these. They're not private, um, you know, family-owned farms. And with the purpose of capitalistic return on investment. Um, so 166 funds globally, which was a ninefold increase from 19 that were had in 2005. So you, you, what you saw is an explosion of, um, of the markets trying to turn farming and basic agriculture into an investment channel. And, and, and you know, again, the, just the basics of our, of our system is that I buy funds with my money and I hope that they return money. That's, that's, that's capitalism. That I'm not really, um, the, the, what the company does with the money is kind of irrelevant. The markets want a return. And everything's invested in the markets. If you have a state retirement, um, you can trace down to the office and they will be investing their money, your retirement dollars in the market. If your college has an endowment fund, it is invested in the market. If your hospital has an endowment, it is invested in the market. So even though we might try to diversify the ways we try to protect our money, they're all built on the same markets. And the markets have now started to look at agriculture land as as, um, a means of growing wealth for its investors. Um, The same thing has happened with um, single-family homes. Um, there was, according to MetLife Investment Management, they released a, a report a year or two ago, and they suggested that institutional investors may control 40% of all U.S. single-family rental homes by 2030. So there is a there is a, a big push. The numbers I was able to find for were the fourth quarter of 2021, and institutional investors spent 50 billion dollars in those three months, 50 billion dollars in the U.S. to buy more than 80,000 homes. And that um, was 18.4% of all the homes purchased in the U.S. So so the figures for late 2021 show that about one in five homes was being purchased for um, companies to turn them into investment properties. Meaning the whole purpose is that the rent extracted from the individuals there will create wealth for the, the, the investors. So, so when it comes to, to land and how we engage the way we live and the way we get food in the United States and, and across the globe, more and more of this is just being turned into another avenue for creating um, fungible wealth, wealth in terms of money and treasure that can, that can be turned in, into everything, which of course is the system. That's what we would expect it to do. And even if we look at our own individual behaviors, um, when one looks at the problem of wealth distribution, there's one reoccurring problem. And that's that you have um, um, an entrepreneur or an inventor 
or um, somebody who acts in violence or whatever, and um, they'll you know take control of, of resources. Then they they accumulate the wealth, but of course the time frame of human beings is very short. So what they basically do is they pass that wealth on to the next generation and create dynasties. So it doesn't take very long of running the system. Of course, we've been running it for thousands of years till you have huge concentration of, 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 of wealth in the hands of a few. And they, of course, use that wealth oftentimes to secure their position um, amongst all of us. So, you know, the 8 billion people on this planet, there is a huge distribution and wealth is concentrated at the top, and those at the top do things to protect that wealth. I was watching a television show a few years ago. I don't even remember the, the, the show. Um, it was some kind of reality um, thing. And there was one of the participants was a physician, a doctor, an emergency room doctor. And if I remember right, she had graduated from you know a prestigious um, college. She was in, I believe, in New York City. And her husband was also a physician. And um, in, and she, when she was telling her story, you know, they were working really, really, really hard. Like, like they had very little free time to do anything. They didn't vacation. They just worked, 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 worked. And um, she said the prime, the primary reason they worked so hard was that um, she had two things. She had, of course, had to pay off this huge amount of debt that it cost her to um, get through a medical school for her, her and her husband. So they they had, they had significant debt. They had to work, and then they had a child. And they were putting that child on the track to go, you know, to the to the right most expensive preschools, to go to the right most expensive elementary schools. So that they, their 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 entire um, wealth, as as she expressed it, was structured to make sure that her child had an edge up, and presumptively so that her child could go to a prestigious university, where her child could pick maybe uh, the one of the most lucrative degrees, which of course, one of those is medicine. But hopefully you see where this is getting. Um, then the point would be for her daughter to go get a degree in medicine so that she can pay off her student loans so that she can then um, put her kids in the most prestigious schools and work, work really hard in order to perpetuate the system. That something, in, in my view, some wires got crossed somewhere and she hasn't stepping back and saying, why? What, why are we doing this? Because the, the point seems to be just to perpetuate the system into the next generation, the system that wasn't really great for, for us. Um, in our modern world, um, you know, I, I, I pointed out that um, homes have been one of the greatest accumulators of wealth or the greatest return to wealth in, in the United States. And the way we treat that is we treat the house, the family home, like uh, uh, we treat any other investment. I think the average um, American moves every five years or something like that. Um, and um, it's really common for, you know, people to have a great big family home and then they sell it, you know, when they're when they're getting older and they don't need it as much. They don't do the, the upkeep and, and um, then it goes to a, a different family. The idea of intergenerational housing, that we have a family home that is, um, you know, used by those who have the most need and others step back from it is, is not there anywhere really, except in the upper classes that might have 
um, you know, their, their manners or their, their homes that have a, have a huge value and huge identity. But for most of us, that is simply not the case. The, the, the values of our age, being from a capitalistic one, are basically built on accumulation of wealth. I, I daresn't call it greed, but it looks the same. Um, you know, not everybody's greedy, but um, it's disguised as taking care of oneself or taking care of one's family. So, you know, the, the, the problem we have with the richest folks is they go and they earn all this money and then they pass it down. And then they, they buy their way into the big schools. They buy their way into the most prestigious societies. They buy their way into the, into the, into the highest paying jobs and create a ceiling, a, a caste um, that, that is hard to break into because you just don't simply have the wealth to be able to go to the schools and get the internships and get, get the, the, and get what it takes. Now, one might argue that we have a merit base and the top, the top of the top can break through the system. I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but it is not the common story. Those are, those are exceptional people who are able to do it. Oftentimes what the elite schools in my view are looking for are the legacies um, and the best of the best. So you're really going to be able to impress um, on on the old money, as it were, to keep investing in the endowment and keep giving money if you can also have the best professors who are publishing the best papers and some of the best graduate students. So so it, it's, it's, it's a simple economic um, decision in, in, in my mind to keep keep the, the, the most elite students. but but that's not that's not a cultural, thing that, that that's something that that serves um a small small sliver of society but we're doing the same thing on an individual basis if what we're trying to do is work really hard so that we can pass the money on to our next generation i and i think it's one of the the, the biggest um uh, paradoxes of of people in the United States, uh, I, I've talked to many very liberal people, but they still engage in this system of trying to give one up to, the, to their kids, trying to accumulate wealth so they can pass it on to their children, even though they might condemn that as a system. It is the weirdest thing. It, it, is, it is something that we look at and say, we don't want a society where it's, it's determined your success by the amount of capital that was accumulated by your ancestors. Hardly anybody would say that's the way we want to go, but almost all of us act that way in 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 our own homes. Okay, so I've, so I've kind of laid out this thing, saying, okay, we've got a problem right now. We we um, housing and living is sort of seen as just part of our portfolios. Um, that for more and more of us, there isn't any chance to do anything but rent, um, um, rent farmland, rent housing. Um, and it seems like we're we're taking the arc back to the feudal system, to to the you know the age when we were serfs, and all the land was owned by the by the aristocracy, and um, you could work the land as a tenant, but then the the landlord was going to take their cut. We're just reproducing that system again. We're 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 moving back into it. So so what's the alternative? I think that when it comes to our land, our culture. And the things that, that, that we collectively own, and I don't like the word own there. I, I'm thinking of things like public libraries, or parks, open space, things that, that, that we enjoy as a society or as a group or as a town or as a community. When it comes to those things, it is fundamental to me that we need to move away from the concept of ownership and more to the concept of stewardship. 
that these things should be built to last longer than our own time frame. And we should consider them as, as gifts. And, and uh, gift is still the wrong word. We consider them as the property of those who come after us just as much as they were um, in, the, in, the, in, in our own um, space. It's, it's an idea of looking at not just us and what's best for us and what we want and what we can consume and what we can gather and what we can accomplish, but how do we look down the road at our children, at our children's children? Um, the um, Iroquois, or a sophisticated society, um, philosophically and um, from a government perspective. And in fact, um, you can read very much that um, a lot of the American concepts that, that made its way into our Constitution um, actually had um, birth among um, the um, Five Nation Confederacy. Um, and there was um, a law written um, among the, um, the Iroquois people um, that was really dates back to previous to the 1500s it it, it, very old and um there were several principles um um, and one was the concept of the seventh generation principle so this is a this is a philosophical principle that was paramount to the Iroquois worldview and the idea was simply that we should evaluate our decisions with how they will impact seven generations into the future. Now I've got, let's see, my kids, that's one generation, my grandkids, two generations, my great grandkids, three generations, my great grandkids, kids, four generations, their grandkids, five generations, their great grandkids, six generations. So that's, that's the, um, you have great-grandchildren, and then the next set of great-grandchildren, and then the next generation after that. If you take um, generations as 20 years, you're talking about 140 years, basically. That is a long time frame. And um, if you look at that sort of time frame, you'll see that much of what we built our society around, which is really around the automobile, um, has been around since um, really started gaining heavy use in the 19-teens. Um, so we have built all of our cities, all of our suburbs, everything around the use of cars and trucks, um, moving, um, stuff around, but that's not, it's not seven generations yet. We're talking more like four, maybe five. So I just want to put that as a, um, guidepost that if we're looking at seven generations back and seven generations forward, we're looking back to the beginning of the industrial revolution. So that should give a scope of what should we should be considering in, in the, in the future. There is a a, a great um, quote on this by um, Jonas Salk. And he said, if we want to be good ancestors, we should show future generations how we coped with an age of great change and great crisis. And that's what we're in right now. We are in a time of great change and great crisis. There is a, a modern philosopher named Roman Krasnarik, I think is, is how you, you say his name, Krasnarik. Um, and he has a, he's written several books about this topic. And um, he has a, a wonderful philosophy. Um, I, you know, I kind of said at the beginning that um, our current values are built on capitalism. And a central concept of capitalism is just simply growing capital, 
um, which, of course, the less charitable call greed, getting more and more and more and more. There's no sense of stasis. But um, Roman proposes another value entirely, and that's empathy for the future. We don't really talk about or think about the future very much in our society. Um, you know, we we build factories and we abandon them. <laughs> we uh, build mines and we abandon them. Uh, we sink ships and drop them to the bottom of the ocean. Um, we throw stuff away as if there is anything such as a way we recycle, but not really. We just, our society really has blinders on when it comes to the next generation. And I really like Roman's idea of empathy. If we start thinking about the next few generations and have empathy for them. Now, there are those, the doomers among us who say, okay, we're screwed anyway. Um, we've gone too far with climate change. What's the point? I just as well get mine now. There's those, you know, who say, okay, well, we have to get rid of air travel in the future because it's expensive for the climate. So I'm going to do as much travel as I can right now before it's gone. That is not a view that's, that's empathetic at all to those who, who come after us. And I think one of the, um, one of the things that, that drives me is changing the way I approach the world to have that empathy. So let's talk about Dabbler Farm and what we are trying to do, given this kind of setup I have. Um, of, of course, and we're going to talk about this in one of the other um, principles, but sustainability is, is an important thing. Um, there needs to be sort of a, a stasis that we're not taking from the future. Um, the example, I, you know, I, I, I like to use the Midwest. Um, for tens of thousands of years, you had these enormous herds of buffalo that would go and they would, they would churn up the, the, the grass and the mud. They would, they would eat grass and then they would drop their, their droppings and fertilize the fields. And when we first started farming those fields um, 150 years ago, 170 years ago, they were, um, had wonderful topsoil. They were, um, they were great. But we haven't maintained them. We um, pour um, chemicals on them and they're, they're, they're dying um, because we are not approaching in a sustainable way. So one of the things about, um, and when I compare that to, to like European hedgerows where they've been growing on the same farms for thousands and tens of thousands of years, that we have lost in a few generations what ideas that we had ingrained into our culture that made it so we weren't taking from the future to have what we want now. Our next sort of thing we're doing on the farm is balance. And you'll hear me talk about balance a lot as we talk about the next principles. But we need to balance our wants and needs with the balance with the wants and needs of the future. And in fact, we have to deal with the past. So we have to balance ourselves with the past. And what our generation today, unfortunately, has to do is we have to pay off the debts of those who came before us. We have to figure out how to deal with the carbon debt. We have to feel, figure out how to deal with deforestation. We have to figure out how to deal with climate change. We have to deal with sea rise. We have to deal with mountains of garbage. We have to deal with um, um, speciation. We have to deal with extinction. We have to deal with invasive species. We have to deal with changing climate. And a lot of that is based on the decisions that were made by people in the past. Some of that can be attributed to ignorance, but much of it is attributed to willful ignoring what the consequences of actions will be. Um, so here we have to pay the debt. We have to pay attention to the land. We have to deal with what decisions that were, were made before us, and we have to try to steer the boat um, 
and at um, Dabbler Farm, we're taking an intergenerational approach. Um, the The farm is intended to stay the farm, and um, th- those of, of my um, children, I currently have two, possibly three of my adult children who are planning on building here. And over the next um, 10 years, we have a plan to convert the single family house here to um, multiple apartments and to add some um, smaller homes um, so that we have shared resource and individual space. But, but um, and then we're investigating, do we bring other folks who are not um, directly related to us? Um, that would be the, the, the long-term goal. But we're looking at a 10-year approach to having intergenerational living, and that includes the idea of multi-generational housing. We need a farm that can support small children and the elderly um, um, because um, we just believe it's a better way to live and more in line with the way that most of our ancestors all across the globe um, lived for for disappearing into the shadows of time until really the Industrial Revolution and, and other modern um, inventions um, sort of bent that game. One of the things we're trying to do there is determine what the carrying capacity is. We want a little bit more of an agrarian approach, meaning we want more of our own, we want to be closer to our own food. And, um, you know, so if I have my three acres here, how many people really should live here? What should be the model if we moved away from the suburban quarter acres that requires miles and miles and miles of gridded asphalt ro- roads? If we if we were able to expand property a little bit instead of having a quarter acre, have two acres or three acres or four acres, whatever that number is, I don't know, and then have more people live there, what's that number and how do we create that model? That's one of the questions that, that, that drives us and moves us forward is how do we give a quality of life um, that, is, it is, that is rich and rewarding and have multiple people sharing the same resources? Um, and then really, as I keep saying, moving away from the concept of ownership to a concept of stewardship, um, our plan over the next few years is to put the, pl- the farm into trust. And the trust, um, um, I, I, I want to be um, ordered in a way that makes the farm own the farm, that we are visitors here. We're only staying here for a short time during our lifetime. And our goal is to keep the farm as... Um, as precious and beautiful and wonderful as possible while really keeping an eye on who's coming next so that we're handing this gift, this land from one generation to another, to another. And I believe firmly that that seems to be the best approach to dealing with um, the troubles of climate change and how it will impact our lives. So our first uh, value is, is um, a timeline longer than our own. I think it, I put it up first because I think it really speaks to what we're trying to do in terms of actual intergenerational living. And um, it speaks to a lot of the other values that we're going to be talking about when we start taking Roman's view and saying we have to develop empathy for those who will come after. Even though we may never know them, the people who will live here in a hundred years, I have to have a place for them in my heart, just like many cultures reserve a place for their ancestors in their heart. It's almost like we need not only a shrine to, to grandma and grandpa, but we need a shrine to the unborn children to help us remember that this keeps going on after. And um, 
we're handing, we were handed a mess and we're going to be handing the next generation a mess. But what we can do now, what we can do today is to start cleaning it up. I believe that human beings will find a way to live with the planet as it changes. It's more an article of faith for me. It, it, it may not be so, but the world's a big place and there's lots of little corners where I think just like our ancestors were able to eke out a survival, I think it will happen again. But we have to change. We have to change so many things about the way we live. We have to return to many things that were good that we left behind. We have to use modern science and modern approaches um, to, um, to meld some of those old ideas with new discoveries and new understanding. We have to continue to expand our knowledge of, of um, through the scientific approach of nature, of ecosystems, of how things interact. And that we have to keep handing down. So the goal for the rest of my life is realizing that there is a way to live with the planet that is living in harmony. And our goal is to try to discover that, knowing that that goal, that plan will take longer than my lifetime. It is work that I must hand off to the next generation. So it's an imperative value of me to work on that and do that now. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, you can check us out and see what's going on on the farm at dabblerfarm.org. Uh, we appreciate um, feedback and um, engaging with you. Please drop us a line. Let us know what you think. And I will catch you on the next one.